Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, we welcome to the SASPOT Rishan Abbasi Mellon, postdoctoral fellow in the humanities and lecturer in the Department of Religious Studies here at Stanford. Rishan, thank you for making time for us today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, Alita, for having me. I'm very excited to speak with you. So am I. Well, let's get going. Tell us more about yourself. Sure. So, yeah, currently I'm here at Stanford um, working on my research while teaching two classes a year. Um, as an academic, uh, I think the best way to describe myself would be to say that I, I see myself as a, a theorist, a theorist and a historian of religion. And I say that uh, in the sense that they both sort of mutually inform one another. So I, the history that I study, which in my case is that of the Islamic intellectual past, informs my theoretical understanding of religion. Um, and it's also the case that my readings in theory, which are often drawn from anthropology, political and social theory, inform my reading of the past. So I, I really like to see myself as uh, existing in two distinct worlds, though ones which I think can really um, uh, speak to one another in very dynamic ways. Um, and uh, in a more specialized level, what I work on are, you know, medieval and early modern Islamic texts written in Arabic, uh, generally speaking in the pre-modern world. Um, and that usually cuts off at around 1800. So um, it's a sort of arbitrary periodization, but you know, the, the common link across the Muslim world is that it's around that time that you start seeing the sort of increasing influence of, of Europe and European understandings of the world and modes of life. And um, if we want to sort of understand the Islamic intellectual heritage uh, on its own terms before, this, uh, before it's sort of um, uh, written in the kind of shadow of the West, um, one looks before the, uh, the year 1800 or so. And um, uh, primarily I've worked mostly on medieval texts, but I, I've, over, over time I've increasingly moved to both sides of the, of the kind of time periodization. So I work somewhat on early Islam and even Quranic studies, but then also early modern, early modern Ottoman world. Um, so all things pre-modern Islam, that's, that's where uh, you know, my expertise lies. And when you say medieval, what, what time frame does that cover for you in your world? Yeah, so medieval would cover, I would say, basically from the 10th to the 15th century. Okay. Um, book ended again by this sort of formative period of Islam, where you have, you know, a lot of uh, pluralism and contestation, and then essentially the time before orthodoxy, um, both in the Sunni and Shia realms. Um, and then also the cutoff being around um, the rise of the early modern empires, that being the Ottomans, the Safavids, the Mughals, and, and that sort of thing, uh, where you, you find sort of, you, you encounter very distinct transformations, developments taking place, which, which weren't present previously. Um, so around the 14th, 15th century, I would say, is the end of the medieval era for the purpose, analytical purposes of a historian. Sure, sure, sure. Got it. Um, and you say that you, you inhabit these two distinct worlds and, and they 
your interest in how they speak to each other. So I, I don't want to you know, ask the question that is your work, but how do they speak to each other? Yeah, so what I would say, you know, it's interesting because at the beginning of my academic career, I was very interested in the theoretical side of things. I was um, even considering going down the route of you know, anthropology of Islam because I was so deeply preoccupied with these questions of um, secularism and you know, compatibility of Islam and democracy, these sorts of things. Uh, and what I often encountered, however, was that, you know, despite the uh, noble um, aims of the various writers writing within this uh, field to sort of de-provincialize de de Europe, to decenter the West, um, most of them were very unfamiliar with the medieval, the early modern Islamic terrain. Um, basically, the texts written by Muslims before Europe, um, you know, uh, came onto the scene. And um, I felt that gap very deeply inside my soul, really. And so I continued to go down the sort of philological, historical route. Um, but again, I didn't, uh, I did it with an eye towards these, precisely these theoretical questions. And what I realized is, you know, precisely what I thought going into what I would discover is that reading medieval thinkers from the Islamic world can actually teach us a lot about our contemporary condition, um, not only in terms of the relationship between Islam and the West, but also in terms of the way we think about how we organize our societies um, politically, socially, um, even existential questions. And that's something that really I'm very deeply passionate about is, is to, to, to see to what extent or how um, medieval Islamic thinkers or medieval understandings of piety, so on and so forth, how they can help us think about contemporary debates in the broader academy, the broader humanities. Fantastic, thank you. Um, so you are, you have this kind of dual role at Stanford. You have the, the postdoctoral fellowship, but you're also a lecturer and you teach two classes a year. Is that what you said? Yes, no. um, so tell us about both these roles and how they then speak to each other. Yeah, so the, I would say they're somewhat distinct. Uh, my role at the Humanities Center is primarily that of a, an interdisciplinary researcher, really. And I think that's one of the, the, uh, the great advantages of being at a place like the Humanities Center. It is deliberately uh, oriented towards interdisciplinarity, which obviously speaks very clearly, uh, uh, very directly to my own interests as I've outlined them up until now. Um, and so there I am, you know, someone who works at the intersection of secularism and, and pre-modern intellectual history, and in one way or another, try to speak to um, the various other academics I encounter there who work on things ranging from, you know, comparative literature, early modern comparative literature to, um, you know, ancient Greek philosophy. Uh, and I find that to be a very dynamic environment to be in precisely because of the kinds of questions I'm asking. And, and I think it's also the reason why I was, uh, you know, selected to, to join their um, cohort of the Mellon Fellows. Um, and so that's a bit distinct from what I do in the religious studies department. Um, there I am uh, the sort of go-to ex expert on medieval Islamic thought and sort of all things related to pre-modern Islam. And, um, and in, in, insofar as I am uh, serving in that role, I, I, I try to help facilitate a conversation amongst my colleagues from very different religious traditions. I mean, some closer than others, for example, Judaism, Christianity, but also in Hinduism and Buddhism. Um, so one of the things that I really like about being in that department is that what I've realized is we're all, each of us are actually interested in asking the same sort of questions. Um, we actually have very similar orientations towards text and philology and, and also theory, um, but that we're doing in a very distinct context. Um, um, we're totally uh, uh, unaware of each other's fields. And it's actually an amazing thing to, 
to, for example, come across, you know, very recently I was talking to a postdoc at the department who works on early modern India and, and the kind of rise of a public sphere and Hinduism as a kind of religion. And I mean, it was just this natural, naturally flowing conversation between us two, since I'm interested in the same questions in the Ottoman world and the rise of the emergence of a public sphere beyond Europe, beyond the West. And it's so amazing to see how even these um, conversations we're having, which are overlapping, actually have very different um, uh, things to say. In the Hindu context, it's very different than what I've encountered in the Ottoman context and so on and so forth. So it's that sort of thing that is, um, I think, what, one of the great boons of being in something like a religious studies department, which is essentially premised on the idea that we're going to think about diversity as the kind of central pole around which we all or, orient ourselves. Um, and, and, and alongside that, obviously, and the department, I see myself almost, you know, uh, 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 primarily as a teacher as well. And so the kind of work I do um, in the department is to teach classes, which essentially um, can speak to students at Stanford, you know, some of whom are in the humanities, none of whom are very, very few of whom have experience with Islam or Islamic studies proper, and most of whom are actually from a computer science background or something in the hard sciences. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the conversation in our department, which I've really enjoyed being a part of, has to do with the question of, well, how do we make religion relevant to, you know, these people who are never going to think about religion again, perhaps, or who have never thought about it previously. Um, and, and we're all doing it from our own sort of perspectives. But um, that's something which is very much on my mind and, and that of my colleagues. And, and it's, it's really nice because I think in that sense, it speaks to what the kind of work I do at the Humanities Center and the kind of work that my colleagues do at the Humanities Center, which is that, you know, we're all essentially invested very deeply in the revival of the humanities, or perhaps really the, the you know, the saving from extinction of the humanities, right? right. And that's at a pedagogical level, but also at a kind of public research level. Um, and so the two really go together very well. And, and uh, you know, most people wouldn't associate Stanford with a kind of robust atmosphere of the humanities, given its, you know, location in Silicon Valley. But that's not the experience I've had at all. I've had, I found a very welcoming and dynamic uh, um, uh, base for the exploration of the humanities. Absolutely, yes. And, and uh, well, it's one of the many things that the SASBOT tries to do is to make that point. And, and there's so much uh, very, uh, there's so much very vibrant conversation happening at uh, Stanford around the humanities. I want to go back to your students, uh, because you describe them as uh, not having um, had a ton of experience of Islam. So I'm guessing then that they're not heritage students. They're also not in the humanities. They're computer science students. How do they end up in your class is my question. Yeah, it's a great question. And, and <laughs> yeah, I hope you know the answer. I, I, I think I have a sense, you know, after the quarter's finished, I can look back and think about it. Um, but I mean, I, I would sort of, uh, you know, pull back one of the things that I said previously, you know, some of them do have exposure to Islam. So I would say around half of my students are Muslim. And I think, um, you know, the fact that I'm teaching a course called the language of Islam will draw them in. Um, but that comes with its own uh, sort of um, complications. And, and, and why I think what I said earlier still um, is, 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 is valid, which is that none of them really had an experience with thinking about Islam in a kind of academic uh, setting. Right. Um, and that means Islam in all of its diversity, you know, outside yes. of orthodoxy. Um, and also just Islamic history writ large. I mean, a lot of Muslims uh, have been sort of removed from the kind of long history of Islam and have either sort of oriented themselves towards the earliest period with scripture. And it's actually revealing one of the comments of the class, which I, you know, in my feedback, I assume was one of, from one of the Muslim students said, you know, going in, I thought this was going to be a class about the Quran and Hadith. 
And I was pleasantly surprised that it was much more than that. It had to do with, you know, Sufism, philosophical approaches to God, you know, uh, sort of disruptive, subversive approaches to Islam. And, and so, you know, it's so part of the work is to, you know, challenge the assumptions of the students and each of them have very different assumptions. So for Muslim heritage students, it might be a kind of monolithic understanding of Islam. Um, and that applies to students who have no uh, background in, in the Islamic world who might have understood Islam through sort of headlines in the news or, you know, obviously Islam has a very prominent role in the geopolitical stage at the current moment. Um, and so part of uh, what I was trying to do in the class, and I think it actually ended up being pretty successful, was to get all of them to sort of meet in a common space in which they could think about the language of Islam, really, how Muslims have articulated their understandings of Islam, how they've enacted that art, uh, articulation over time, and really in the pre-modern world before the kind of modern rupture, so to speak. And, um, you know, what's amazing is by the end of the course, they all, you know, did what they needed or did what they wanted to do with the course. So, you know, in the final project, there were some creative um, aspects to it as well. And so, you know, one student who is from China, from Hong Kong, has no experience with Islam, but is very deeply interested in the question of tradition and modernity, especially being from China and thinking about the Chinese past and the kind of rapid modernization it's gone through. You know, he's from a CS background, so he he, he was inspired by this one novel by Orhan Pamuk about the idea of a horse. How do you depict a horse, right? Is it is it a kind of realist depiction in the kind of Western mold, or is it from on high, the kind of divine under the divine gaze towards the horse, which is sort of what one finds in miniatures? And so he created this whole a coding thing that I'd have no idea what's going on. But essentially, he basically taught the AI to mix a realistic image of a horse with that of the miniatures in which he found horses from the Ottoman and the Mughal periods. And part of his point, and it's a, it was really amazing to see them blend together. Part of his point was precisely that. What happens when the traditional and the modern are so blended, you can't even see one from the other? And it was a kind of questioning of the reifying of tradition and modernity, right? Like kind of seeing them in a binary way as many modern people often do with respect to Islam and other religious traditions. So that sort of thing happened with another, you know, with other Muslim students who are sort of grappling with their own tradition. You know, one student wrote a very long and very um, sophisticated essay analyzing one work of medieval Islamic sort of ecumenicism, which he thought sort of fell short. It wasn't actually pluralistic. And for him, it was a kind of very personal um, engagement with what he's found to be this, the horrors he's encountered in modern Muslim society or, you know, the limitations he's found growing up in a Muslim community. So one of the things that I tried to do is to, you know, meet uh, every student where they are and, um, you know, allow them to approach the subject material as, as they please, because I'm not really trying to tell them what Islam says. I mean, I think that was one of the misconceptions uh, many Muslims, uh, not Muslim students, but all the students had coming in. Okay, let me listen to this lecture who's an expert. Tell, tell, them, tell us about what Islam is. Right. And by the end of the course, they realized, you know, um, that this was not obviously the objective of the course. And it was actually a, the, the broader objective of the course, you know, going back to this question of the humanities for me was really, okay, let's, let's read, you know, this 11th century theologian. Let's read this 14th century poet um, or this 17th century travelogue in the Ottoman world. And, and, and let's see what they can, you know, tell us about ourselves uh, and tell us about our societies today, you know, in the same way that we might read Aristotle or Plato or Rousseau. Why can't we read these thinkers and mind them for, you know, the, uh, the existential, political, philosophical value that um, they can uh, convey to us even in our, you know, modern age. And I think it's also a part of the process to kind of move them beyond this modernistic conceit that the past has no relevance to us, that it's something simply to be overcome, right? And I think, you know, many students were 
you know, who were really from, who came back from that sort of presupposition were very moved by that, that very idea and was part of what attracted them so much. So, you know, you asked this question of what brought them in. Right. I really think it had to do the fact of, well, this is there's this ancient thing. We don't really know much about it. It seems strange. It seems foreign. But that foreignness itself is very, you know, it draws people in. And and um, what what I the thing that I enjoyed so much about the course is, you know, I never found any sort of deep pushback in any kind of fundamental sense. You know, there was a you know struggle in trying to understand the ideas and the way I was presenting Islam, but everyone was you know down for the broader project of okay. Let's let's look at this strange world and render it familiar. And in rendering it familiar, let's you know question our own assumptions about what it is to live in the 21st century. And and, and that's what I love to do. So it was an amazing experience. Wow, fantastic. It's liberal arts at its best, right? And okay, I, I yes. so. will you be teaching it again? We're going, you're gonna get a hundred emails from people who are like, I want to take this class. Yeah, well, I hope so. You know, I'm definitely going to teach it again because you know you learn the process better and how to move forward and, and it works so well, right? So I'd love to teach it again. Great. Great. Um, let's drill down into your book project. Um, tell us more about that. Yeah. So this is um, the project is actually, you know, uh, limited to the medieval Islamic period and, 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 and intellectual history at that. So what I try to do in this book is to essentially um, reconstruct how medieval Muslim thinkers dealt with the idea of the secular, um, grappled with the question of the secular. And, and in, in sort of making that point, I'm obviously questioning a lot of the current orthodoxy in the academy within religious studies and in other fields like sociology, in which it's often assumed that the secular is a modern invention, right? Mm. It's something which emerges in the 17th, 18th century. Right. I mean, that even the term secularism doesn't come till the 19th century. And so people often emphasize the novelty of the secular age, uh, you know, to use Charles Taylor's term, and for good reason. Obviously, you know, secularity in the Western world has really shaped our world at a global scale, and it's a very distinctive sensibility and approach to politics, which wasn't really present in the pre-modern world. And I, I concede that fact. But what I don't concede is the fact that in the pre-modern world, you know, people from a wide variety of religious traditions were simply living under a sort of kind of sacred can canopy, a kind of, uh, they were approaching the world as sort of undifferentiated uh, undifferentiated reality in which, you know, religion permeated all facets of life. Um, on the contrary, what I find in my reading of, of the Islamic past is thinkers grappling with similar sorts of questions about, for example, how do you um, govern uh, a, a religiously pluralistic society? Does everyone have to follow the same religious law if they don't believe? Uh, is there is there no notion of freedom religion? Um, even at a kind of more uh, concrete level, um, a theological level, we might say, for the Islamic tradition. You know, it's often assumed that in the Bible, you know, you render the things of Caesar unto Caesar and that Jesus is sort of separate, you know, render, you're separating religion and politics sort of intrinsic to the New Testament. Whereas in Islam, these things are sort of fused with one another. You know, in one chapter of my book, I, I look at all of these um, discussions surrounding in, in the medieval Sunni uh, canon around uh, the question of the, the Prophet Muhammad's scope of authority, right? You know, they recorded everything he said, you know, with regards to eating, with regards to his military decisions, whatever it may be. And the question was posed, well, is that divinely inspired, right? I mean, in the Quran, it says he only speaks from God. He doesn't speak of his own whim. But actually, medieval scholars came to the conclusion that, well, that's not entirely true. Uh, in many instances, he actually spoke from what they call his ra'i, his, his sort of own personal subjective opinion, which is actually not infallible, as was his um, sort of revelation from God. 
And so when he was, you know, talking about things related to agriculture or, you know, military strategy or even, you know, ad hoc policymaking, um, they would, you know, grapple with these questions, where to draw the lines, right? Was he an expert in medicine? Many scholars said he wouldn't, he wasn't an expert in medicine. And there are actually traditions which tell us, you know, where it seems that he's changing his mind about a certain uh, medicinal idea, which obviously suggests that it can't be from Revelation because he's of two, two minds about it. So um, the point of the project is really to, first of all, collapse this idea, which is very prevalent in the modern world, both within the Muslim world and outside, that Islam is sort of uniquely all-encompassing ideology, it's sort of system, a way of life. It speaks to economic, politics, social life and in, 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 in a totalizing way in the way that, in such a way that other religious traditions are, are not sort of bound to. Right. To me, that doesn't map onto the medieval Islamic reality. And on the contrary, what I find are people who had actually created a sort of autonomous secular realm in which um, theological judgment was suspended or in which the Sharia was seen to be sort of a bounded phenomenon, uh, i.e. that the Sharia didn't speak to all facets of life. I mean, they were very confident and, 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 and uh, they rested content with the fact that the Sharia didn't speak to all facets of life, which is obviously very much in contrast to the modern uh, understanding of Islam. So in that sense, I'm trying to, you know, uh, overcome a modern myth, you know, one might say, but also more specifically within the academy to um, orient ourselves towards the sort of non-Western pre-modern past in our debates around secularism and secularization, which as I began with, right, is often oriented around early modern Europe or the contemporary world, whether Western or post-colonial. Yeah. Or what I'm saying is, you know, there's a broader history of secularization, a broader history of grappling with the category of the secular, its relationship to religion, um, that will actually more fundamentally displace our Eurocentrism uh, as re with respect to this debate. I, I I love it as a, you know, I mean, as a European who is 100% trained in all these very Eurocentric tradition, anything, anything that disrupts that, I just love because yeah. it, it's, I mean, it's almost like, when I was growing up in that world and in that way of thinking, I already felt that this cannot be right. Yes, right. Um, and, and so, you know, it's just an ongoing, it's lifelong process of kind of, you know, debunking, I guess. Um, so one thing concerns me, um, let's see how to put this. Uh, when you say that um, it says in the Quran, but really, that seems a very uh, difficult statement to grapple with. Um, and then you also said that the prophet is not necessarily, I believe this is how you worded it, not necessarily infallible. Yeah. Uh, these, I imagine, are, are complicated concepts for a lot of people and, and may put you in a kind of heretical category. Is that is my thinking correct or is that just more Eurocentrism? And, and if it is true, then how do you how do you deal with that? Yeah, no, it's an excellent question. And I think it's actually um, coming from the right place because I do think that even in the modern Muslim world, you know, the understanding of the Islamic past has been sort of reduced. It's been sort of stripped of that ambiguity in the same way that the West has sort of approached Islam as well. Right. And, um, you know, the thing that, you know, I, I made a very explicit decision in my book to write a work of intellectual history in which the main actors were those thinkers who are you know, well-regarded uh, in the modern world, who are seen to be sort of the representatives of orthodoxy. And, you know, it's sort of a move to 
um, protect myself from precisely this kind of critique. But it's also not just simply a defensive gesture. I do think that there's a lot of interesting things being said here. But, you know, part of the failure of a lot of, um, you know, the earlier reformists in the Muslim world who try to, you know, bring secularity to bear on the Islamic world is they were often seen as puppets of the West. Um, and uh, for one reason or another, I mean, obviously, there are sec there's dictatorial secularist regimes across the Middle East. Um, and, you know, it leaves a bad taste in the mouth of these post-colonial subjects, right? Um, but at another level, the problem with many of these reformist thinkers is that they were doing precisely that. They were going back to the scripture and trying to reread it in ways that might be at odds with modernistic readings or modern Muslim readings of the text. And one of the things that I try to do is to say, well, you know, let's just take a breath for a second and look very closely at how some of the most, you know, canonical thinkers in our tradition actually dealt with this question. And what one encounters is actually precisely the ambiguity that has been cast aside in our modern discussions, right? So what I'm saying is, you know, I won't tell you what to think about secularity in Islam. I won't tell you what you think about prophetic infallibility. Let's see what the most well-regarded thinkers in the Islamic tradition long before the influence of the West said, right? So you cannot uh, uh, accuse them of some kind of cultural authenticity, right? They're long before the kind of uh, uh, waves of colonialism set in. And what one finds is precisely this um, open-mindedness, this uh, grappling with the Quran and with the Hadith uh, tradition. So for example, right, you know, when I'm saying, you know, the Quran says this, but, well, it's not really a problem for them because the way in which they approached the Quran, you know, was, uh, you know, as this sort of, um, uh, sort of receptacle of, uh, continuously ambiguous statements regarding the nature of God, the nature of the world, and so on, and the nature of the prophet, and so on and so forth. Um, it wasn't a foregone conclusion what the Quran meant, right? And, and there's this great uh, German scholar, Thomas Bauer, who's written a book called The Culture of Ambiguity. And, and part of his argument is precisely that, that, you know, the medieval or the pre-modern Islamic tradition uh, actually approached a lot of these things, whether it's scripture or politics or art, from a decidedly, emphatically ambiguous perspective. Um, and so when, you know, these medieval Sunni thinkers are grappling with the question of the prophetic, prophetic heritage and his scope of his authority, they're not troubled by the fact that the prophet seems to say things that don't seem, that don't appear to be right in a kind of plain rational sense, right? They're, they're, they want to take it at face value, right? They're very open to drawing new conclusions, to thinking very critically. Um, they were very committed, you might say, to the letter of the text, to, to standards of rationality, however they defined it, um, and less committed to a kind of identity formation, right? In the modern Muslim world, it's very much of identity. And really what it is is this, the secular West, right, represents a uh, you know, set of commitments, which we do not, right? And we essentially define ourselves in opposition to that. Right. And, and much of modern Islamic discourse is sort of uh, premised on that uh, orientation, that attitude. And you don't, you simply do not find that in medieval Islamic world. And, and that's precisely why I, I wanted to study this. I found it to be a very liberating sort of intellectual exercise to, to see how people, you know, how Muslims could think about secularity without saying, oh, this is Western or this is modern or this is culturally inauthentic, so on and so forth. Mm. And so, you know, I, I, I have, um, I have hope, you know, people would ask me precisely what you asked me, you know, do you, how do you think the audience would receive this? And, and just from the sort of, uh, you know, samplings of presenting this sort of work in the Muslim world and even in the American Academy, I found that people are very open to this sort of activity now. And if you do it with a kind of deep um, uh, sympathy towards and um, 
uh, commitment towards the text and preserving them and not trying to read anachronisms into them and that sort of thing, people will be uh, generally okay with what you're doing. And also if you bring in the kind of theoretical nuance, right? So in my introductory chapter, you know, I give due diligence to all of the critical anthropology of secularism. You know, I'm very well aware that secularism is not free of contradictions, that it's not also just a kind of another form of modern power and the kind of inscribing of difference between Islam and the West. I'm very well aware of that. And what I'm saying is, you know, this is not mutually exclusive sorts of activities, right? You can do critique, but you also can do a constructive, creative, theological, or uh, textual activity. I hear a lot of footnotes is what I'm hearing you say. Yes, a lot of footnotes. And it might be even too much of a defensive posture. I'm trying to go back now and say, do I really need to prove myself this much? But, you know, it's a first book. And again, the controversial nature of the project, um, one feels like it's sort of necessary. And it's also to do with the fact, you know, I was trying to bridge these theoretical and philological world, worlds. And, you know, some of the philologists in which, you know, that was really the tradition I was trained in at Harvard in the Nauk department they might uh, be skeptical of the kind of theoretical orientation I bring out in the beginning of the book. So it might be sort of in not in response to that, but to sort of place myself within that tradition of saying, well, you know, I also see the value footnotes. And personally speaking, I love them. You know, I love it. I, I, I suppose it's because I've trained in that tradition that I, uh, you know, I, I have much too long footnotes that I'm sure my editor, uh, when I send it to the publisher, will say, we have to get rid of half of these. <laughs> I hope they're footnotes, not endnotes. I don't know. I'm probably an old fuddy-duddy about that. But endnotes are just so easy to not go to. And, and yes. there's so much beauty in, in the footnote. They are, and I'm a, I'm footnote the whole way, and, and I yes. think it'll be footnotes, so don't don't you worry. <laughs> yes, wonderful. Um, I'm mindful of the time, but I have one more thing I want to ask you, which is um, that I know that you have another project lined up, and I do want you to tell us about it. So yeah, go. sure. Um, I'm happy to do that because you know I'll probably be starting this summer after I turn this book to, to work on it more. Great. Uh, uh, with more rigor, but. It's actually um, a complementary project to my first, and it stemmed from a chapter I actually wrote in my dissertation called The Worldliness of Islam, which will potentially be the title of the book. Um, and it was funny because when I wrote this chapter in my dissertation, I, I think almost all of my committee members uh, upon the presentation of my dissertation all said, this chapter needs to go, right? There's a lot of interesting things going on here, but it's not you know, fully fleshed out. It's sort of it seems like you're working on a different set. You, 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 another question emerged in the course of your dissertation. You needed to, you know, deal with it properly on its own terms. So basically, this, you know, one of the things that I encountered in my reconstruction of Islamic secularity is, you know, what kind of fundamental uh, uh, fact of history that I would say is that, you know, the the Christian conception of secularity from the very beginning, from the New Testament to through the early modern world. I would say it's very much informed by what I would call a kind of anti-worldly ethos. Uh, and I don't mean to caricature Christianity in any uh, sense, but what I mean is, you know, there are many passages in the Bible that, uh, you know, speak of the flesh in a not so positive way, right? Or speak of, um, you know, worldly or secular authorities disparagingly. And this is very much in contrast to the Islamic heritage. And this is something actually Christians noted when they first encountered the emergence of Islam, they said, well, what is this? This is not a religion, right? I mean, mm. this prophet says he's a prophet, but he has multiple wives. He says he's a prophet, but he's a military leader. I mean, his companions are in the marketplaces selling their goods. I mean, how, how are you supposed to be pious and, you know, be so deeply immersed in the world? Mm. Um, and, you know, this has been a sort of a, a, a rehashed trope throughout the ages, Nietzsche, Rousseau, even modern Islamists, Modudi in the South Asian context, Iqbal. And, 
one of the things that I'm trying to say is, you know, they're actually onto something. This is not an entirely wrong understanding of Islam. But what I'm really interested in doing is to historicize this development, because to me, as a, as a historian of religions, I think it's actually a very radical and, and somewhat revolutionary transformation in the understanding of religion, the understanding of piety, um, and the relationship essentially between religion and the world, right? And so one of the things I was saying, in my, in my, I say in my book, is that you you very I actually never find the invocation of the dunyawi, the dunyawi, the adjectival secular is secular, um, in a neg with a negative theological connotation, right? Mm. It's usually used very neutrally, and that's in juxtaposition with the medieval Christian West, where secularists often convey this idea of being lesser than sort of the uh, you know the monks who are in the monasteries, right? Okay. The regular and secular clergy, and so. You know, it struck me this worldliness sort of made its way even into the vocabulary around the religious and secular. So what I'm trying to do in this next book is actually to move a little bit earlier, not the medieval period of the 10th century, but really from the 7th to the to the 9th century, and to trace the development of this sort of worldly orientation towards religion, um, and precisely through a few central nodes. So one is obviously sexuality, right, um, and really sex itself. Um, the, uh, there are many hadith traditions which speak very positively about sex, and you find in the uh, early Islamic world, you know, people who are the most renowned scholars, um, uh, you know, figures of piety, you know, speaking very openly about their sexual activities and their, you know, even their sort of um, tendency to kind of uh, live an increasingly sexual life without sacrificing their commitment to the Quran, for example. And what's really interesting to me about that is how does that development take place in a world in which the majority of the population has a very different understanding of religion? And even those recent converts who were previously Christian or Zoroastrian, again, viewed religion through a very different lens, right? Um, how does that development take place in which, you know, by the ninth and 10th century, it becomes sort of normative to think about the relationship between piety and worldliness in a far more, one might say modern and dynamic rate, way, right? That they're not at odds with one another, that in, in essence, they um, can, you, one can move between the other. It's not a kind of stark juxtaposition, one might say, between the sacred and the profane. So, so to me, there's a kind of foregone conclusion that this happened. My whole interest is, well, how did this happen? Because I think it's radically revolutionary in terms of the broader late antique world, and it hasn't really been brought to bear on our understanding of the history of religions. And obviously, it's, it's sort of, uh, to go back to my first point, and I'll conclude with this, it speaks to the question of how do we think about secularity in the modern Islamic world, right? In my first book, I looked at categories and concepts and theories, because I'm really interested in thinking about and, and looking at how Muslims theorize the secular, right? But again, I, I, I increasingly became disenchanted with this over the course of my research, as one does, right? You sort of get sick of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I started to think about, well, now I want to do the, think about the practices, the kind of social history behind this, and the deeper conceptions of piety, which are not necessarily theoretical, but sort of kind of embodied, one might say, right? Um, in reports and stories and traditions. And so the second book, I want to help narrate the history of secularity and Sanctuary even further by saying, Okay, well, here is the history of worldliness in, in the Islamic world from the very beginning. And this is part of the story of how modern Muslims and, and even people in the West can think about secularity in different ways, because it is a radically different trajectory than that of the medieval Christian West. And it's one it's a history that needs to be told in essence. And, and that's part of what I want to do. It's it's also very much a history that needs to be read by lots of people. Um, would you consider, we love a good footnote, we've established that, but would you consider publishing a work like that in a um, 
footnote light or dare I even suggested footnote free kind of accessible yeah. format for a, a broader audience? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm so glad you're asking this question because it's something I've been increasingly thinking about, you know, in the past year, but even in the past few weeks, I'm, I'm very open to the idea of after kind of establishing my, you know, scholarly credentials right. and putting these things out there to really veer towards the public intellectual side and write trade books precisely because of, you know, how we began this conversation, right? You know, my, my place in the, human, in the Humanities Center and the Religious States Department, I'm constantly preoccupied with the question of how to make these questions relevant, right? And I really want to do that. And it's funny you mentioned this right now because I'm, I was just working, you know, reading, rereading this book um, for my course on what does it mean to be secular, which I'll be offering in the spring. And, and this book is by this um, historian of ancient Christianity, late antique Christianity, uh, Robert Marcus. Uh, I believe he's a British historian, but he essentially spent his whole life writing several books about the idea of the saculum and Augustine's thought about the transformation of Christianity. And it was all with an eye towards debates as a kind of modern Catholic person. How, how do we, what do we believe is the relationship between the church and the state? Is there a room for a secularity in the modern Christian world? And, but he was a historian. So he, you know, he did, you know, he, it was, it had all the charms of the scholarly apparatus, but actually the one book I'm assigning for this upcoming week is called Christianity in the Secular. And it's essentially a public oriented book. It doesn't really have many footnotes. And it's, it's, it's nice to read because it's kind of culmination of his career. He wrote it just a few years before he died, I think. And now he's saying, okay, well, let me talk about, you know, what I think this all means, the history I wrote. And let me chime in on the debates that we're having within the Christian community, which have really important um, consequences in the modern world, right? Especially in Europe, right? I mean, there's this rise of right-wing nationalism. What does it mean to be Christian? Christian? Is, is Europe Christian, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's regrettable that he ended, you know, he waited till the end of his life to do this. And I, I mean, I don't blame him for this. And he, he was raised in a very different academic culture. But, you know, in reading that and seeing how he actually had very interesting reflections on the category of the secular, given his like long reading in history. I feel, you know, more and more committed to the idea of, you know, doing this early on in my career and saying, you know, let's write something that people can understand and digest and that is accessible to them. Because, uh, you know, it's in the time of, you know, the crisis of the humanities, it's the burden is upon us, really, right? If we don't do this, no one is going to do it for us to make our uh, work relevant. And, and it's not only a kind of instrumental thing, you know, for some people it might be instrumental, but for me, it's, you know, my, my passion you know, all started in very kind of deep existential or political level, right? And I think it's often the case with most of us, right? You, you, you think about the condition of the world or you think about the condition of yourself and slowly, slowly you end up being in the academic world and now you're just writing footnotes and doing all this <laughs> sort of thing. But you sort of become, you lose that, you know, beautiful kind of uh, spark, right? Yeah. And, I think I'm, I'm becoming increasingly aware of that after writing a you know, 600 page dissertation, doing all this sort of academic work that I, I, I wanna make sure, ensure that early on, I don't lose that and I can sort of live my life in, in light of that spark. So, so I hope to do that. And, and I'm very happy to hear that you know, people are asking about this and that you have you know, the kind of work you're doing at the Southeast Center is essentially oriented towards the precisely this, uh, this kind of attitude of reviving the humanities and making it speak to the broader questions of the modern world. Well, thank you so much. And I think, um, yeah, don't wait till you retire to write for a broader audience. I, I totally see why people um, want to do that or feel they have to do that. But if you feel that you're able to and, and can find the, 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 the space and the support, uh, do it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I so enjoy talking to you and I'm sure our audience will love listening to you, Rashan. Thank you.
Likewise. Thank you so much, Leah. That was a wonderful conversation. And, and thank you so much for hosting me. Also, as always, thanks to Soam Shiva for creating the music for the Sasspot and Simrat Mataru for post-production. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. Come, fair.